0: Welcome to The Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create and grow income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Are you tired of trading your time for money? Do you desire freedom today instead of retirement in 10, 20, or 30 years? I'm MC Lobsher, and this is The Cashflow Ninja. Hello, Cashflow Ninjas. MC Lobsher here, and welcome to another episode of The Cashflow Ninja, I have a great show for you today. In today's show, we're going to look at the real history of the Federal Reserve Bank. My guest in this episode is G. Edward Griffin. I was honored to do an episode with him in 2016 about the Federal Reserve System. It was originally published as episode 25. You know, guys and girls, there's so many of us that get up um, to commute to work, and it takes about an hour and a half to commute to work every day. And then the workday is about eight to 10 hours where we work for money. And then we get in a car again and commute back from work to our loved ones, another hour and a half. And this is simply to earn money. And this is all done for the, the, the purpose of money. But not a lot of us step back and uh, think for a minute exactly what money is. What truly is money and how does money work? And um, I have to say, like, one of my biggest aha moments for me personally was when I picked up a copy of G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve uh, System. And I think today's episode is another episode that all of you will find very, very valuable, old and new listeners. And it's an episode that's going to help you really um, help to understand the money game and how money really works. If you're interested in joining our investors group, you could go to cashflowninja.com forward slash investors group and fill out an application form and or email me at info at cashflowninja.com to start the discussion to see if you're a good fit for our group. And if you're in the Philadelphia, Bucks County and Southern New Jersey area, we are hosting a live investors meetup event every month in Newtown, Pennsylvania. For more information on the monthly event and information on how to join us at our next live event, you could go to cashflowninja.com Forward slash events. And I'm also speaking at the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up on June 27th through to June 29th. It's a three day information packed event for multifamily investors with over a thousand attendees and over 50 speakers. You'll hear from experts about finding deals, raising capital, underwriting strategies, selecting markets, and so much more. To access the event, you could go do apartmentevent.com to grab your ticket. And when you use promo code Ninja, you get $100 off. If you are like many of the listeners of the show, you're always looking for unique ways to protect and grow your hard earned capital. But sometimes that's easier said than done. The key to investing late in the cycle is identifying favorable opportunities on a risk adjusted basis. That's where our friends at ASIM Capital come in. Since 2011, ASIM has helped more than 300 accredited investors allocate more than $20 million to mobile home parks, cell storage, and workforce housing due to the ability to generate asymmetric returns while protecting their investors' portfolios. If you're interested in learning more, head over to asymcapital.com. That's A-S-Y-M-capital.com to get instant access to their investment offerings. MC Lobshire, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast and also the President and Chief Wealth and Investment Strategist of Producers Wealth, where we help our clients integrate cashflow banking, also known as infinite banking, with their business and investments. If you're interested in learning more about how we create strategies that integrate cash flow banking and investments to turbocharge them, you can access a video series at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. I'm honored to have Mr. G. Edward Griffin on the show today. Mr. Griffin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I appreciate being invited.
0: Can you please share a little bit about your background and your journey and what revelation led you to write and expose how the world's monetary system really works?
1: Oh, sure. I'd be glad to. Uh, Everyone likes to talk about themselves, I suppose, but that's the least important part of this story. But in a nutshell, uh, MC, I I really didn't uh, expect to be uh, doing anything this profound or this uh, complicated on money. Uh, Back in the day, as they say, uh, when I was just uh, a young fellow trying to uh, figure out what the heck I was supposed to do with my life, I had uh, decided I would start uh, applying some of the skills I learned in school, which was uh, I went to the University of Michigan and learned something about communications and television. I worked in a television station in Detroit for a while, so I thought that was my field. And, um, and so I decided I would uh, start to produce a uh, little bootstrap type documentaries on items that uh, were intriguing to me. Well, um, in those days, uh, and we're talking about the 1960s, uh, a documentary um, wasn't as developed as it is today. And certainly in my um, financial category, it meant what we used to call film strips. <laughs> and those were little strips of film, like 35 millimeter um, film and it, with a, a series of single uh, frames on them, very much like a slideshow. And uh, there was usually a recorded soundtrack that was uh, played on a big disc and later on on tape recorders. And every time it was time to advance the uh, frame to the next one, there would be a beep in the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> and there was some poor soul sitting there at the projector that turned the wheel to the next uh, uh, frame. And that's, that's the kind of uh, the so-called documentary that we were producing in those days. So anyway, that, that's a little side trip and I, I enjoyed thinking about it. But anyway, um, so I decided I would produce a, a documentary of that nature on the topic of uh, inflation. And I knew there was something funny about inflation that uh, most people had no idea, including me, um, of what caused it. Uh, we all thought that it was caused by somebody uh, in, the, um, in the market, you know, in a, If prices were too high for food, for example, uh, the inclination was to blame the farmer. Well, he's making too much money. He's charging too much, we we used to think, for uh, growing things. And the farmer would say, no, no, we're going broke. It's the middleman. They, They... They hammer us down into the ground. They don't pay us enough, and they market up to the grocery stores and so forth. The grocery stores said, oh, no, no, not us. It's the unions that are driving us out of business because the wages are too high, and everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else, and uh, I, I had a feeling there was something fishy about that, so I thought I would get to the root of it. I decided to do a documentary on inflation. I never did do the documentary uh, because I got distracted by other things. But in the process, I had acquired a lot of research, and I filled a couple of uh, banker boxes. I guess in those days, we didn't have banker boxes, but they were cardboard boxes with uh, right. papers and, and books and uh, recordings and things like that. A few years later, maybe five or six years later, I got an invitation from a, a group of literally little old ladies in Pasadena. Um, they had a study group there on um, on – taxes. Uh, how you know, It was an anti-tax kind of a little study group. They were not activists. They were just uh, the study group. And they wanted me to um, come and speak to their group on taxes. And I said, well, you know, I don't know much about taxes uh, as such, uh, except that they're too high. And uh, I'm against them. But uh, other than that, what can I say? But I could tell you something about a hidden tax Oh, what's that? They said. Well, said, well, that's called inflation. It's a tax and uh, you have no control over it, but you pay it whether you like it or not. Oh, that's good. And of course, the idea was that they just wanted a free speaker and that was me. So uh, they didn't care too much, I don't think. Uh, but anyway, I, I dug into my closet and pulled out those boxes of research material. And and I was amazed at what I had acquired. And um, I hadn't been through all of it, but I did the couple of days before that. I went through all of that stuff, and I was overwhelmed with the information that was sitting in those boxes. So I cobbled together a presentation on the hidden tax called inflation, and it went over pretty well. And they said, gosh, that's very good, Uh, uh, Edward. You ought to uh, put that on the road. Well, that's always a mistake. Uh, to tell a guy that he has got something good in order to put it on the road because chances are he will put it on the road, which is <laughs> what I did and we that evolved into a series of uh, one day seminars actually called a Crash Course on Money. very highly received. I was happy about that, and I thought I was imparting some valuable information and uh, But then it dawned on me in the question and answer period after these seminars. people were asking me very specific questions relating uh, to the real market. They wanted to know what I thought they should do. You know, these little old ladies not only in Pasadena, but all over would come up and they say, you know, um, I'm a widow and I've, I've got this nice little nest egg, but it's it's highly leveraged. I, I'm in debt, but I own some income producing property. Should I sell my property and get out of debt and put all my money into gold or specific questions like that? And I, I realized I was a fraud because I had no idea what they should do. All I knew was what caused inflation. So I stopped giving the seminars and I enrolled in a course um, and I, I got a CFP designation, a, a certified financial planner designation, um, not because I wanted to become a financial planner, which I never did. It was not my intent, but I thought that would be a, a good way for me to get up to speed on the real world of markets and investments so I could talk intelligently to these people. So I did that and then that was the beginning of uh, – of a seven-year project to write the book. So it was a long, involved process, and had I known what was involved at any point along the way, I probably would not have... um Dared uh, to undertake it because it was much bigger than I thought. So it's like so many projects, MC, with everyone, I think. You just wander into something and you have no idea where the path is going to take you. But uh, And you'd be afraid to do it if you knew where it was going. But once you're there, you're very happy that you did.
0: So true. And Mr. Griffin, in your book, you lifted the veil on the Federal Reserve Bank and what it really is. Can you give my listeners an overview of the Federal Reserve, what it is, what it is not, and how it was established and conceived?
1: That's the core of the topic, the historical side of it anyway. And it's fascinating. Uh, you know, when I tried to write uh, this book, not the way so many other books have been written on the Federal Reserve, which are highly technical treatises. Uh, it seems like uh, Everyone's written on this topic, and they get they get lost in the labyrinth of discount rates and the discount window, how many members on the board of directors, who appoints them, and the technical stuff, and uh, you know the the loan uh, to asset ratios and all of these things. And I didn't see the topic that way. I saw it as a who done it. Uh, this was to me one of the greatest crimes in history. the crime of legalized theft, plunder. I'm not exaggerating in any way when I use those words. Legalized plunder, to me, is a very soft phrase. I could think of other ways of describing it that are probably more accurate, but less socially acceptable. Uh, It was a crime, a huge crime. And I thought, well, let's, let's talk about the crime, what motivated the criminals, what the prize was, why they were doing this, what impact that has on its victims, even though no, many of uh, us did not know uh, what uh, w- you know what what price we were paying, so uh, that 's how I wrote the book as as a crime, uh, who done it, and I figured out who did it and where the body is buried and so I wrote the book as a series of stories uh, talking about the people involved and their lives and their motives and what they did and what happened and so forth and uh, so that was um, what how I approached the topic, and uh, it uh, it turned out to be a wise thing, I think, because we've had a lot of a lot of support for the book over the years. It was published in 1994, and I was just sort of chuckling and, and cackling as I looked at the latest uh, printing that came in from the uh, printer just the other day m um, c it's up to the fortieth printing now. And I, fantastic. it is fantastic because I thought when I finished this thing, oh my gosh, what have I done? I had a garage full of books. I had I'd taken my last dime to buy, and I turned to my wife and I said, Pat, what have we done? And we have a garage full of books, and nobody's gonna <laughs> <laughs> nobody's gonna know about it, or if they knew about it, they wouldn't care to read it. So anyway, that turned out to be uh, fortunate. Um, but anyway, that uh, so when I say it's a crime, let me get into specifics. First of all, the question you raised is, what is the Federal Reserve? When I started down this project, like everyone else, I thought the Federal Reserve was a government agency. Well, it turns out it's not a government agency. It's, uh, they call it the Federal Reserve, but it's about as federal as uh, Federal Express. And um, they had the word reserve on it, and there are no meaningful reserves anywhere in the system. It's all leveraged. Little tiny reserve don't amount to a hill of beans. And they just literally create money out of nothing with no reserves behind it. Except, well, there is, there is a, a very important reserve, but it's not a financial reserve. It's a political reserve. See, what the Federal Reserve is is a cartel. It's no different than a, than a banana cartel or an oil cartel, peanut cartel. It just happens to be a banking cartel. And cartels always have... A problem, uh, and that is how to enforce participation. They have to enforce uh, that its members obey the rules of the cartel. Now, sure, there are stories, and I'm sure they're real, that they do have, you know, underground uh, illegal ways of enforcing cartel agreements. Guido shows up and, uh, you know, beat you up if you don't do what you're supposed to do or the assassins show up and all that sort of thing. We read about those things in history books and and I believe they really happen. But the cartels don't rely so much on that as a means of enforcement of their regulation because everybody has to agree, for example, to fix the same price on their product or that kind of thing. And it, it may be in the case of oil, for example, that let's say Mexico is Needing money. The government is so deeply indebted, it needs money. So it will will lower its price of oil in order to grab more of the market and get more cash flow. In other words, it starts to act like a free market operation instead of a cartel. And how in the heck are you going to enforce that Mexico uh, uh, charge a certain fixed rate for its oil? You can't do it. That's always a problem uh, with cartels. So, the preferred method is to get the government involved. All cartels and monopolies like to go to the government. And under the guise of protecting the people, protecting the people is always the cry. They get the politicians to pass laws to fix the rates and to uh, to uh, use the power of government to enforce the rules of the cartel. Now, in that way, once you do that all the members of the cartel have to agree, or they're breaking the law, and now the government sends the police in. And uh, now that's how cartels enforce their agreement, is by bringing governments into the arrangement as partners. That's exactly what happened with the Federal Reserve System uh, on the Jekyll Island back in 1910. Jekyll Island is a small private island off the coast of Georgia, where it was private in those days. It was uh, owned by a small group of billionaires from New York, people like um, John D. Rockefeller and you know, J.P. Morgan's group and things like that. Uh, these were the, the richest people in Wall Street, the tycoons. It was a resort island, and it's where they went with their families to get out of the cold of New York. So uh, they went to Jekyll Island back in 1910 and they created this cartel and that's exactly what they did. They decided, uh, they said to each other basically, gentlemen, we are competitors. They represented the biggest banks and financial interests of the United States and also of the world. They brought in the Rothschilds, for example, there were several people there who were uh, representatives of the Rothschilds, just for example. So these are the biggest financial dynasties of the world and certainly of the United States. And when they got to Jekyll Island, uh, they sat around a table and they said basically, gentlemen, we are competitors, but let's stop competing. This is the new enlightened age. Let's uh, get together. Let's form an association. Let's not call it a cartel. Let's just call it an association. and In fact, let's call it the Federal Reserve System. (laughs) And uh, We will write out the rules and regulations that will guide our own action, and it will allow us to control the entire field of banking and interest rates and money supply and all of that to our uh, best interests. But we'll have to sell it and package it so that it looks like we're doing this in the name of protecting the people. That basically was the scam. That's what they did. They, they created a cartel agreement that very much favored uh, those uh, powerful banks and allowed them to control their, their market without having political interference. But they made it look like it was a political body so that the people would be content, thinking that finally there were laws in place that would control those big, bad bankers. Well, they didn't realize that the laws were in place, but that the laws were written by the big bad bankers. And that that's the reason they met on Jekyll Island, by the way, because it was secret there. There were no prying eyes. There were just a few of these guys. There were six of them. And they sat around the table. And it was very private. And they denied to the outside world for a long time afterward that they even were there. They said, no, no, there was no such meeting. That's just nonsense. That's just foolishness. And then later on, they admitted, yes, well, we went. But it was a duck hunting trip. And then finally, much later, after the Federal Reserve was passed and into law and became revered by the American people as a great American institution, well, then they started to admit that, yep, we had the meeting, and it became funny after a while because when I was reading all these books, many of them written by these men themselves, it, it seemed like they were competing, finally, for um, the position of being uh, revered as the most important and influential person at the meeting. And all of the details came out in their private memoirs. Their biographers wrote about it eventually. Some of them wrote magazine articles that were published in the Saturday Evening Post. And if one is diligent enough and they go to the archives, you can pull out all of the intimate details of what happened on that meeting on Jekyll Island, which is why I call my book The Creature from Jekyll Island. And what happened, what their motives were, and so the story is all there. So getting back to your question, uh, M.C., it, the Federal Reserve is a private cartel, and it's all dressed up to look like a, fe- a federal agency, a government agency. It is not. Uh, it it does have the, – the president is given the power to appoint um, you know, the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve. That's about it. But if you notice, the president never selects anyone for chairman of the Federal Reserve who is not part – of that um, community of uh, special banking interests. They always come from that group itself. And it's a dead giveaway when you realize that none of these chairmen from the Federal Reserve that are appointed ever come from the private telephone books of the presidents who nominate them. In fact, Mm -hmm. I cannot think of any chairman who was even known to the president who appointed him. The presidents don't even know these people, and yet they appoint them. So that should get you thinking, well, how? Where, why did they appoint this person? And, uh, well, now you're into influence, political influence. Who made the biggest donation to the campaign of the president? What obligations and deals did he make and so forth? And you finally come to the answer to that one. So that's what the Federal Reserve System is. It's a cartel. It's a, it's a legalized uh, program of plunder, and it's plunder because, you see, the Federal Reserve now, or the, let's call it the banking cartel, uh, now has control over the nation's money supply. Just think about right. that. Think about that. that people still think, as I did when I started on this project, I thought that, well, the money of the United States government is issued by the United States government wrong you know uh-uh, that's not it zero points yeah. uh the money is actually uh it's printed by the treasury and uh, all of that but it's actually upon the orders of the federal reserve system the bankers say uh, to the to the government they say okay we need so so much more currency uh today in order to keep a certain amount in circulation and and keep you know, uh, keep the banking system nice and fluid. But the currency itself is only a very small percentage of the total amount of money. Most of the money by far is uh, actually checkbook money, digital money. It doesn't exist in any physical form. And, uh, you know, for every dollar that's created as a, a paper, a piece of paper, uh, there are thousands and thousands of them that are created as digits. So anyway, um All of the money, the United States money, even though it says United States of America across the top of it or United States, it has nothing to do with the United States except that it originates in the United States, but it's originated by the banking cartel that we call – very reverently, we call it the Federal Reserve. And so if you have the power to create money, just think of what – that would be a cool uh, authority to have. You can create money at will. As I go from one aspect of this to the other, I see certain hot points that uh, in my own experience, my own uh, my own awareness came as big surprises and with a lot of exclamation points. And when I suddenly discover, discovered that the banks were creating money out of nothing, I thought, well, what, they're just creating it and spending it uh, on, on their limousines and their your yachts and so forth? And I, no, no, that's not how it works. They create the money, but it sits it sits idly in the computers or in the vaults, waiting to become money and it's not doesn't it doesn't actually become official money until it is borrowed by somebody see that's the trick, and it's not too difficult to understand, but it's something you don 't think of unless you 're part of the banking paternity. See the banks have all this money available to them, but it 's not really money until somebody like you or me, we walk into the bank and say, hey, Mr. Banker, we'd like to borrow some money for a new car. Well, they sit down, they ask you to fill out the form, they ask all your private questions, they want to know your blood type and everything, but they don't really care because they don't have any money uh, anyway, but they're going to create it for you. And so if you look like you're a nice, reliable person and you're going to pay back plus interest, they'll say, okay, here's your um, here's your 24 or 25 or $32,000 or 40, how well, depends what kind of car you're going to drive. Hey, here's your money. Now you go buy the car. Well, what we don't realize is that that money didn't exist at all uh, before that loan was created. And that is how the banking cartel creates money. It's literally, well, I was going to say it's out of nothing. And that's a good way of phrasing it. They create money out of nothing. But it's worse than that they created right. they created out of debt and that that's what i mean when i say you have to borrow the money into existence first so back to the point that the banks don't really spend the money they create they loan the money they create and they make interest on that and so that's how they that's how they thrive that's how they uh, grow and prosper is with this thing called interest And interest is a misnomer, too, because you would expect interest to be properly defined as a a surcharge or an extra amount of money built on a loan. But when you analyze this process, there is no loan going on because there's no money to be loaned. The money is created. There's no money sitting in a bank to be loaned. Now, if it were, if you had a stack of gold coins or silver coins or even a stack of, of money that was backed by something of intrinsic value and you loan that to your neighbor, that's a loan. But the banks have none of that. They have just a little tiny bit of deposits in, in the vault or on the books to make it look like they've got money. But that is nothing compared to the amount of money they loan into existence. So, what this really is happening, what's really happening there is that they are creating money, not loaning money. They create money on your behalf, and if they're smart, uh, they will, well, they're all smart, but one way of doing that is that they ask you to sign over something of intrinsic value to back up that creation of money. They may want a, a deed on your farm or your house, or they call it a mortgage, or they may want the pink slip on your car. So if you don't pay the interest that you promise, uh, they get your marbles. Uh, So they don't put anything into the deal except uh, a promise. You know, they're they're the mechanics. Let's put it this way. They create the money out of nothing. And if you don't pay the back, they get your house. <laughs> That's oh, an interesting thing right there. Um, very, interesting. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. So anyway, all of these things are what I learned and so many more uh, about the banking cartel. And it when you come to the end of this discovery, you find out that when when I use the phrase that, that this is legalized plunder, that probably is the greatest understatement of the century.
0: Since 1971, there's no, no more gold backing of any money, so then money just became debt, as you eloquently explained.
1: Yes, that's true. And even before uh, 1971, it was pretty much that way. The ratio of uh, gold or silver to back the American currency ha- has always uh, been weak, uh, although it was strong compared to the rest of the world. And so we thought it was backed by gold and silver. It, and the question is, to what extent was it backed? And the answer, surprisingly, is, well, not very much, but at least it but at least it had some. And uh, over the years, that that ratio kept diminishing to the point where, you know, first it was like 40 percent and then 30 percent and 10 percent and 5 percent and finally 0 percent. And so, yeah, we're completely on a fiat money basis now.
0: You're listening to The Cashflow Ninja, the show helping people all over the world create monthly cashflow and achieve freedom today, not in 10, 20, 30, and or 40 years. This is the show where cash is not king, but cashflow is king. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. My friend Dave Zook says, you can be conventional or you can be wealthy, pick one. Dave and his team at The Real Asset Investor have syndicated many successful real estate and ATM projects over the last decade. Now, his team has an exclusive opportunity for investors in the coal space. Do you want to be part of an energy project that takes conventional coal and cleans it up by extracting liquids while releasing almost zero emissions? The sale of these liquids can produce strong double-digit cash flow and aggressive tax benefits against ordinary income, all while using America's number one, most plentiful resource in a responsible, efficient manner. Now that's non-conventional. For more information on this exclusive opportunity, you can visit RealAssetinvestor.com or contact the Real Asset Investor team at info at Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the United States. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Learn how to find the best deals by downloading your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. You're listening to the Cashflow Ninja, the show helping people all over the world create monthly cash flow and achieve freedom today, not in 10, 20, 30 and or 40 years. This is a show where cash is not king, but cash flow is king. Now let's return to our interview. The other thing that I found really interesting too was the Federal Reserve Act was signed into law in 1913 that established a- the Federal Reserve Bank and then at that same time the year the federal income tax was implemented. Can you talk about how these two go hand in hand and the true goal of the income tax?
1: Well yes um, that is a very interesting topic and I have never really pursued it very much because I don't know of any way to document my suspicions in all of my research I have never found any evidence Uh, hard evidence in the writings of the people who were creating the Federal Reserve and the income tax. And as an aside on that one, I should say they were the same people, the same uh, politicians, the same bankers, the same little cabal, as I like to call them. I think it's an accurate description. The same cabal was uh, instrumental in promoting both of uh, those pieces of legislation. And I've studied their works extensively and I've never found any written evidence by them to confirm the suspicions that I have and many others who write about this. The suspicion is that the whole purpose of the income tax uh, was to fuel the Federal Reserve. And I just don't find any evidence of that. Um, But I do find plenty of evidence to show that the income tax, first of all, I say what it is not, and and they do write about this one. The income tax is not to generate income for the government, believe it or not. The income tax, according uh, the fact that the the fellow whose the, the name escapes me at the moment, but he was a, he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, one of the regional banks, and after World War II, he was in charge of um, a commission that devised uh, the withholding system of income tax in America. And he wrote a very uh, erudite uh, essay, it was published in a banking magazine. This is shortly after World War II now. And he said in plain language, he said, the purpose of the income tax is not to raise revenue. And I thought, what? I thought that's what it was all about. He says, no, right. no. He said, let's look, and he was writing, he was speaking to bankers now. So he was saying, basically, gentlemen, look, let's be realistic. Now that we have the Federal Reserve System in place, we can generate all of the money we need for the federal government simply by creating it out of nothing. All the government has to do is issue a bond, an IOU, a bond or a treasury note. And we take it. We we will take it. We say we buy it, but we just take it. And in return, based upon that little piece of paper, that IOU, we can create that amount of Federal Reserve notes and give it to the federal government. In other words, the Federal Reserve serves as a, um, a, a mechanic, uh, a technician for converting those bonds into spendable money. And that's the function they serve. So he said, basically, look, the federal government can get all of the money it needs. All we have to do is just create it for them if they'll just give us a piece of paper that says IOU on it or bond. And um because we saw that happen recently after the, the crash of t- uh, 2008, Congress was raising its hand to vote in billions and billions and billions of dollars to bail out the banks and everybody else in between. And nobody ever questioned where that money came from. Uh, government didn't have it. The Federal Reserve didn't have it. But Congress was legalizing it for the Federal Reserve simply to, to create it out of nothing. And there it was. It flooded into the economy. And, um, that's how it works. So, um, yeah, that, that, it's amazing. So nobody ever questions, uh, the need for backing it with anything anymore. This is legalized plunder because when they create that money out of nothing, these billions and billions of dollars flood into the economy and they start bidding against the other billions and billions of dollars that are already out there now the supply of goods and services didn't increase at all it's just the supply of money increased and it would be right. just like sitting around a, a game of monopoly and all the players are sitting there and you know let's say that uh, marvin's gardens is selling for for $200 or $300 and we're we're bidding, but we have a limited amount of money, so we can't bid any higher than two or $300. But now suppose and somebody comes in and dumps a whole stack of new Monopoly paper money on the board and divides it up among everybody. Now everybody's got more money, but there are no more Marvin's Gardens on the board. So all of a sudden, the price of Marvin's Gardens goes up from 200 to $400. But nothing else has changed. It's just the quantity of these numbers so the in the real world, that's exactly how it happens. The money supply increases. And so suddenly everybody has more money. It may take a little time for it to trickle down. Some people are at the, you know, at the trough a lot sooner and and they do much better. Government always does better than than the people at the bottom. And the government contractors do very well. They're in the middle. And, you know, all of the the uh The people who are friends of the of the of the politicians always get these uh, grants. They do very well everybody that's uh, working indirectly for the government educational systems for exactly for example they do well because they're they're up at the trough earlier but by the time it trickles down to to you and me and, and the guys who are working at the assembly line, uh, and wherever they're working, it's, uh, by that time we have get the money and we say, oh boy, we just got a pay increase. But we go to the store and we find out that before we got there with our extra money, uh, prices have already jumped up because the, the, uh, sellers have figured out that there's more money out there. The point is that the process that this triggers, uh, is, uh, called inflation and inflation is merely the, the plundering of the savings of the citizens because they're working like crazy to save money but by the time they get around to spending it, its purchasing power has declined. And the difference between what it was worth when they earned it and what it was worth when they spent it is that little tiny margin that was plundered from them. They don't even know it but it was stolen from them and it was stolen by that partnership uh, between the bankers and the politicians and the instrument of that theft is the Federal Reserve System.
0: And, of course, if you can just create money out of thin air, too, there's not, you won't have a problem to fund wars. And, of course, all the public works that you promise in the elections and so forth. So this goes in nicely in hand in hand. The other thing that actually made the hair on my back stood up, when I was reading your book in 2009, there was a statement, bailout is the name of the game. And you spoke about bailouts. Now, we've seen a new model implemented in, for instance, in Cyprus with bail-ins. And there is some legislation in the Dodd-Frank that a lot of folks are talking about right now, which puts the bail-in provision where they can reach the savings of the bank depositors. Can you speak to this this new model?
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> Isn't that clever? I mean, these people are really clever. They, you have to understand that uh, – uh, we're dealing with the the top of the craft of uh, con artists here. and um they really um i think they deserve a medal for being the best con artists history has ever seen <laughs> and uh, and the reason i call them con artists as opposed to just plain criminals is because although they are uh, criminals uh, they have a way of disguising their crime so that the people think it's wonderful how <laughs> I many people are getting ripped off and stolen uh, from and plundered and they think, oh, these are nice people they're protecting us in some way and they praise them and and uh, they go to banquets and, and when they walk into the room everybody stands and applauds and so forth then that's a con artist if you can plunder uh, a citizenry and get them to stand up and applaud your entry into a room, you're good and uh, this is what we're dealing with so yeah, the bail... Uh, the bailouts, of course, everybody understands that pretty well. Uh, banks go bankrupt because uh, they are not held responsible for their investment decisions. Uh, they they make wild loans uh, knowing full well because of their partnership with the politicians. They know that if these loans fail and it negatively impacts the uh, uh, the books of the bank, and they go into what is officially bankruptcy because they've lost all these mythical assets that instead of having to go out of business, they can go to congress and being the good con artists that they are, they tell Congress, which is made up of other con artists also and so one group of con artists from the banking side is speaking to the other group of con artists on the political side, and they say look we we need um, to uh, socket to the uh, to the taxpayers and get money enough to bail out our losses. And uh, so let's figure out a way to make it sound like we're doing the world a favor. And so they come up with stories like, oh, yes, if if this venerable bank bails, America will collapse. It'll be terrible. The whole, the whole system will collapse. Um, children will no longer have milk to drink. Um, people will be unemployed, uh, will be weak, and perhaps some uh, – enemy some foreign enemy will attack us in our moment of weakness and the the economy everybody will suffer if we don't bail out the bank and so congress says yes you're right so in the name of humanity and patriotism we will authorize the banks to create an extra 20 billion dollars and distribute it among themselves and we'll bail out the banks so that's the bailout and that's happened as everyone knows now many 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 times and um, even though the press is fairly dutiful in reporting this as though it is a patriotic event, um, still the the information has been trickling out so much, the average person is getting the idea that this is not a hot deal for them. So now the the con artists have said, oh, "Okay, we can't do we can't play this card anymore, or not bring money more times. So we better come up with a different game." And, ah, they said, "Let's let's call it the bail." In. Now, that'll confuse everybody, but, but, but because nobody knows what a bail-in is. So um, they have very complex ways of explaining it. But when you strip away all of the con artist language and look at exactly what it is, uh, it is the, um, the banks have gone to their partners in government and said, look, we want you guys to write a law that will legalize our plunder in this way. We are going to plunder our uh, our depositors instead of the citizens in general. We're going to just plunder our depositors. Now, they've got all this money sitting in our bank and they think it's theirs. So what we want you to do is pass a law that says, no, it's not theirs. It's ours. So that when we get into trouble financially and we need another billion dollars or so, we don't have to go to the taxpayers and the Politicians are saying that's a good idea because the taxpayers are the ones that vote us in and out of office and and we're not going to support another bailout. So, yeah, if you're going to steal money from the taxpayers, you better do it uh, another way. So the politicians are glad to hear that they have another scheme. And so they call it the bail in. And what it simply means is that it's a means of of uh, stealing the deposits of the de- uh, of the people who put money in the bank and just taking it and saying, "Okay, we need it to cover our losses." Thank you very much. That's what a bail in is all about, and it's legalized by their partners in uh, in government. So, the, the, first of all, they had to legalize it. They had to to make a, a clear statement that the money really doesn't belong to the uh, to the depositors and they they phrase it in this way they say if you put money in a bank as a deposit it's the same as making an investment in a company you are now investing in the bank so now the money is owned or it's it's the property of the bank now if the bank uh, needs that money just like a corporation you buy stock in a corporation and if, if the corporation um It needs your money to cover some bills. It just takes your stock investment and uses that money to pay its bills because you gave it to them and entrusted it to them and they have legal right to do whatever they wish with it. And you just hope that they're going to produce a profit with it. Now, that's what the banks have decided that should be the arrangement with deposit money. And that is exactly what the governments have agreed to do because naturally they always do what the banks want them to do. So now, um, that's that's what a bail-in is. It's the legalized uh, authority to take depositor money and use it to cover the losses of the bank. And uh, now, that leads to another interesting question, which is this uh, cashless society. Because once this information gets out that this is what's happening, you know what's going to – a lot of depositors are going to say, well, why should I have money in the bank as long as I have – Any meaningful amount of money in the bank, a large amount, my life savings, for example, and it's sitting there in the bank. Those dirty bankers could come along and just take it and they'd be right. So a lot of people are saying, well, I'm going to get my big deposits out of the bank. I don't I don't want them to steal my money. So. They're withdrawing money from the banks, the big depositors, and they're finding someplace else to put it. For example, maybe they're buying gold or silver or they're buying inventories. They're putting it in their businesses or they're putting it in some kind of tangible assets of some kind. And they're getting it out of the banks. Well, the banks don't like that. And so now the next push is to get their buddies in uh, in politics to pass more laws to to outlaw cash. Now, if you can't get your if, – if all cash, if all money is uh, uh, is digital and you're not allowed to carry money around in the form of folding bills or coins, everything is done through a credit or a debit card, a bank card of some kind. It's all digital. That means all the money in the world is in the banks and you can't get it out unless you just literally spend it on something. But you certainly can't put it in a, in a tin can and, and bury it in your backyard, uh, you know. You can't put it in your mattress, uh, right. so that's the that's the f- part of the sector that the bank is now going after. They they do not want you to withdraw your money, so they're making it very difficult, and they're calling this a cashless society. Now it's supposed to be for your convenience, of course. All of these things are done for you, they they say. Right, uh, that's that's the deal. But we know we know that the whole idea is that they. Do not want you to withdraw your money from the banks. So there you have it. it. Once again, it's another example of legalized plunder.
0: Now, Mr. Griffin, you've done fantastic work in it identifying and explaining the source of the problems we have today. And you're also very active in offering solutions such as the work that you're doing with Freedom Force International. Can you talk a little bit about Freedom Force International and tell my listeners more about
1: it? Oh, yes, I would love to do that because I'm a firm believer that this is pointless to talk about all these problems, although they're interesting and it's important that we know about them. But unless we have a solution, unless we have a, a fix then it's just kind of a waste of time, isn't it? It would be better to go and and, and go play, and just hope that it doesn't collapse uh, on your watch. And that as long as you you know you, you can enjoy it, and to heck with the next generation and all that sort of thing. Um, no, we got to have a fix for this. And I have gradually come to the conclusion over the years that the real fix is to. Restore this concept of freedom of choice into our lives. We've been going the other way for almost a hundred years. Uh, there is a, f- um, a political, or I should say, an ideological um, point of view out there called collectivism, and it has been growing and growing for the last hundred years. It was firmly planted in the United States during the Wilson administration, and it has grown ever since to the point where now it is the dominant political and economic and social uh, ideology of not only America, but the world. It's called collectivism, and that is the generic word for all of these isms that we don't like, like socialism, communism, fascism, Nazism, all of these things. If you peel off the labels, you'll find that there's... Uh, they're 99% similar underneath. And it's those similarities that that we need to look at. And when you add those together, it's called collectivism. In a nutshell, uh, MC, it's, it's the philosophy that the the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed, if necessary, for the greater good of the greater number. And that's the idea. Uh, behind it all. And we've been taught that in school. I was taught that at the university. And I thought, well, that makes sense. The greater good of the greater number. It sounds so wonderful. But what it, what it actually turns out to be in the hands of con artists, like we've been talking about, the con artists see that as a great opportunity. They can sell anything. They can, a con artist can sell anything under the label of being for the greater good of the greater number. And that's exactly what they do. All of the great atrocities of the last hundred years have been sold and justified under that uh, sales pitch. And um, so collectivism is really the enemy. I mean, this is such a deep topic. I'm going to just insert a little pause and make a commercial. If any of this interests your your listeners, I urge them to come to the website of uh, freedomforceinternational.org and see what we have to say on it. There's so much on this topic. But the point is that Freedom Force International is an organization that was created by me back in 2002. And the idea was to pull together people of understanding, awareness, like mind, that understood that collectivism was the problem. And therefore, we understand that the solution is to replace collectivism with its opposite. And its opposite is called Individualism, and uh, there's so much to be said on that. Individualism is the concept that says that the individual is the core of society, and not the group. And that right. uh, I'll just pause for a moment there and give a little uh, explanation as to why we believe that. Um, the group, what is the group? Uh, the fact, the shocking fact is that the group does not even exist. The word group is just a word, and it's an abstract idea. It's a concept in the mind. A group does not really exist outside of the mind. It's an abstraction, a mathematical concept. Uh, you cannot touch a group. You can only touch individuals. You see what I'm saying? It's like, right. it's, like the, the, yeah. it's like the word forest. There's no such thing as a forest. It doesn't really exist. There are only trees. You cannot cut down a forest, but you can cut down trees. So it's a a difference in focus that the group doesn't really exist. Anyone that comes along and says, well, the the group, the group has rights uh, that are, um, Bigger than the rights of individuals, they've made a terrible mistake because the group doesn't exist. And so it means that you've opened the door for some con artist uh, to uh, to stand up and say, we or I am doing this in the name of America or something, whatever group they choose to mention or the name of this uh, union that we belong to or the name of this political party or whatever. Um, and they say, as long as it's done in the name of the group, then it's OK. Then Hitler did that. Stalin did that. Lenin did that. Mao Zedong did it. All of the great criminals of the last hundred years have always created their crimes in the name of being for the group, for the greater good of the greater number. OK. Uh, you know, take just a lynch mob, for example. Um nobody approves of the lynch bob, but when you think of it, it's for the greater good of the greater number. There's only one dissenting vote, (laughs) and he's at the end of the rope. So it's it's clear to see upon analysis that some of the things that we were taught need to be reexamined. And, uh, we re-examine all of those things at Freedom Force International. We want people to become aware of the underlying problem of collectivism. We want to put that word back into the vocabulary. We want people to study and realize the, the huge advantages of individualism over collectivism. And then finally, the whole purpose of the organization is to turn that knowledge into political action so that we can replace all of the collectivists who are now in control of the political systems of the world, replace them with knowledgeable and aware individualists who have no axe to grind except liberty. That's what Freedom Force International is all about.
0: Mr. Griffin, if you can't pass on any money to future generations and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to help them build wealth, achieve success and happiness in life, what would they be?
1: Good question, MC. You know, I I think it's not the things we pass on. Of course, We, we some of us uh, would be fortunate enough to have some physical assets to pass on if we're lucky, but they'll get spent <laughs> or they'll rust or they'll be stolen or they will become of no value anymore. And The physical things don't bring lasting contentment to people. The things that really count are, are your friends and your freedom to enjoy your friends the things that really count are enlightenment, knowledge, uh, at least for me. I guess I'm, I, I don't want to put my own uh, my own perspectives onto everybody else. Maybe maybe there are people who legitimately say, yeah, I get my biggest uh, satisfaction out of life knowing I've got a, a bigger car and a bigger house or something. But I don't know of anybody that that has that position for very long because once they get that bigger house or that bigger car, uh, then they go back to that steady uh, monotonous state of, of neither being overly happy nor discontent. They become bored. So to me, it's just, uh, it's a journey. I guess others have said it better than I life is a journey. And uh, if you can think of a journey as being an exciting event, and a chance to learn and discover, and uh, understand, and if, especially if you can learn learn how to avoid some of the big terrible mistakes, and pass the tips on to the to the kids. That's that's a great thing. I, I found out in in later years that my gosh, I, I'm a teacher. I never thought of myself as a teacher, but I'm never happier than I'm sitting than when I'm sitting down with some young person. And the younger, the better <laughs> and, and trying to right. and trying to explain something to them. And I see that. Look, that aha. Look, I get a big kick out of that. And I think most people do. So, I don't know. Back to your question. What are the three things advice? I don't know. I, I guess let's put it this way. I think we should, first of all, respect nature. And when I say that, I'm referring to this whole body of information that interests me on on health, especially natural health finding out what the universe expects us to to do with maintaining our health. And that does not mean loading up on chemicals that come out of a test tube. So I guess the first thing is to respect nature. The second thing probably would be to question authority. And then the third thing is to be true to your principles. Do what you know is right. Uh, that would be, to me, the three things that would bring the most contentment that I can possibly imagine.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, Mr. Griffin, how can my audience learn more about you, your work, Freedom Force International, and keep informed of all the projects that you're involved with?
1: Well, thanks for that. Yeah, we have a cluster of uh, websites. Uh, first of all, our, our commercial site where we we sell things. We actually sell things, books and, and recordings. Uh, it's called realityzone.com. You'll find a hundred or more um, very, I think they're very important and, and very uh, enlightening uh, informational products there. That's RealityZone.com, and uh, then our think tank is um, that's the Freedom Force site, the FreedomForceInternational.org, and that's where we have nothing to sell there except ideas and strategies and tactics and you know concepts. And uh, that's where we hope that people will catch fire, get fire in their belly and want to change the world and do something about making this a better place for the future and that they'll want to come in and join with us in Freedom Force International. And finally, there's a third thing I'd like to mention. Just if you want to sort of tippy-toe into all of this and sort of nose around and see what we're really up to, uh, we have a free subscription available to our weekly news service that I personally produce every week, and it's called... um, Need to know. Need to know news. So the the way you find that is just need to know dot news. And that'll take you to our current um, edition. And uh, I hope you'll like that. So that's where you see uh, our view of what's going on in the world. And between those three, I guarantee you there's plenty to do.
0: Mr. Griffin, this was an honor. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge just of this topic and providing so much value to my listeners. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you, MC. I I hope I didn't bore anybody, but um, I'd I'd be glad to continue this anytime.
0: Life settlement investments have allowed financial and banking institutions to not only buy their equity contractually, but also diversify their capital from any economic, Thank you again for joining me on the Cashflow Ninja. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here, please subscribe, rate, and write a review for our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com. I want to thank you for spending your most precious resource with me today, your time. Until next time, my friend, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms.